0: We'll open your Bibles to the book of Ephesians. We'll continue in studying what we've called the work and wealth of God in Jesus Christ, which is the book of Ephesians. And today we'll be looking at what it means to refashion, reorient your relationships. We're in a section of this book where Paul has described the call to live in a a way that honors the Lord. He's then move to say, be unified with each other. Thus, don't walk like the Gentiles walk. Don't be like you used to be as an unbeliever, but because you've learned Christ, be different, be radically different. Then he gives a series of commands that begin in verse 25 that are all in the put off, put on structure. Stop doing this, start doing this. Put this off, put that on. And it climaxes in one final put off and put on that is an absolute Gatling gun of staccato admonitions of what to put off and then what to put on. Let me read verses 31 and 32. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger And clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. There's a book that is never far from my Bible. I've had it for many years. I've gone through a couple of um, editions of it. This is one that I've actually kind of taped back together. It's a collection of Puritan prayers and devotions. It's called The Valley of Vision. How many of you own a copy of Valley of Vision? Wow, many. If you don't, this is one I, I would highly recommend. It's just a collection of prayers that have been organized as kind of a starter. It helps you orient your mind around a certain theological dimension of that we're supposed to pray for. My favorite prayer in here is on page 119. I know there's other versions that are differently paginated, but this one has ministered to me so much over the years. I want to read it to you. It's called Morning Dedication. Almighty God, as I cross the threshold of this day, I commit myself, soul, body, affairs, "'Friends to thy care. "'Watch over, keep, guide, direct, sanctify, bless me. "'Incline my heart to thy ways. "'Mold me wholly into the image of Jesus,' "'as a potter forms clay. "'May my lips be a well-tuned harp to sound thy praise. "'Let those around me see me living by thy Spirit, "'trampling the world underfoot.'" Unconformed to lying vanities, transformed by a renewed mind, clad in the entire armor of God, shining as a never-dimmed light, showing holiness in all my doings. Let no evil this day soil my thoughts, my words, my hands. May I travel miry paths with a life pure from spot or stain. In needful transactions, let my affection be in heaven. And my love soar upwards in flames of fire, my gaze fixed on unseen things, my eyes open to the emptiness and fragility, mockery of earth and its vanities. May I view all things in the mirror of eternity, waiting for the coming of the Lord, listening for the last trumpet call, hastening to the new heaven and the new earth. Order this day all my communications according to thy wisdom and to the gain of mutual good. Forbid that I should not be profited or made profitable. May I speak each word as if my last word. Walk each step as if my final one. If my life should end today, let this be my best day. is that not a great prayer? So encouraging to have that direction, that trajectory, that morning prayer to say, I want to live a life of grace, mercy, forgiveness. I want to live looking in the mirror of eternity. But look around. We live in a world that's not like that, that doesn't ask those kind of things. It's ego-centered, self-consumed, pride-cares, caring little about others or forgiveness or reconciliation. No awareness of living life in the mirror of eternity. In fact, the concept of even being a forgiving person is seen as weak, while one who holds a grudge is viewed as strong. Another way of looking at it is the idea of getting even. TV, Hollywood, pop culture... uh, And psychologists write about, demonstrate, blame-shifting, unforgiveness, making those who offend us pay or stay away. And the result is that we live in a society filled with bitterness, vengeance, anger, hate, hurt, hostility, getting even and paying back rather than starting our days and living a life like that Puritan prayer which lives for holiness, which measures words, counts consequences. Since we began our study of Ephesians chapter 4, we've been confronted with the radical reality that to live as a true believer, a genuine Christian, is to live a life completely different from the world in which we find ourselves. And to be a faithful Christian is to stand out as light does in darkness. We've discussed Many times in recent weeks, the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ is far too amazing, far too powerful, far too holy to have a relationship with you and your life not be massively, seismically, radically different than it was before you knew him. Remember how Paul began back in verse 1. Chapter 1, chapter 4, verse 1. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you, I beg you, live, walk in a way, in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. Let your life represent your profession of Christ. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance and love for one another. Well, then he goes on to talk about our unity, and then he makes the clear demarcation in verse 17. Don't walk as you used to. Don't live as the Gentiles, as, as your old way of life before you were a Christian. Be different. Futility of their mind, darken in their understanding, walking in ignorance, hardness of heart. But instead learn Christ. And if you learn Christ, you will know how to put that you need to and how to put off the old you. Think differently so that you can put on the new you. And then he begins that series of admonitions in verse 25 that climaxes in the verses before us. Verse 25, tell the truth. Verses 26 and 27, temper your anger. Verse 28, work to share. Verses 29 to 30, watch your words. And now today, verses 31 and 32, refashion, reorient, recalibrate your relationships. Now, before we dive into this, we need to meet our old friend, a phrase that you know well. It's the phrase, one another. And it's a phrase that we meet all throughout the New Testament. And when you see the phrase, one another, it's a clue that Paul and the other writers is primarily talking about relationships within the body of Christ. But everything that we say about living life with our other fellow believers in the church certainly has application to anyone with whom we have contact. Others-oriented is the issue. So what Paul is going to describe for us in the climax of this chapter, the end of this chapter, are two prescriptions for the believer's treatment of others. How do you treat others? What are you like to others? This is two prescriptions for the believer's treatment of others. It's going to be a put off and it's going to be a put on. And underneath these two admonitions to put off, to stop doing stuff and to put on and to start doing stuff are lists, two lists. The put-off is longer than the put-on, as you'll see as we get into it. So let's dive into it. Two prescriptions for the believer's treatment of others. Yes, this is the way a believer is to treat everyone, but of particular focus are the one-anothers, the believers in the church. The first is in verse 31, negate, stop, all meanness. Don't be mean. (laughs) It sounds kind of fourth-grader, four-year-old, doesn't it? Don't be mean. That's Paul's admonition, negate, stop, put aside, all meanness. Then he gives us a list of what that means. First of all, there should be no grudges. It's translated in our, in our uh, modern translations, bitterness. No bitterness. Now, he says, let all bitterness, and you have to look later in the verse to see the verb, let all bitterness be put away from you. And that be put away from you will apply to this whole list. Let it be Cast away, set aside, put off, or stop it. In other words, be put away. Paul is telling us put off and put on. This is the put off section. And don't miss the fact that Paul doesn't say, if you're bitter, perchance, if you've had bitterness in your heart. He assumes that we have roots and degrees of bitterness that all of us can identify. For repentance. Let all, you could translate that, let any level, any dimension of bitterness be put away from you. This is perhaps the broadest and the most summary statement he could use. Bitterness. Bitterness is the cancer of the soul, and it metastasizes very quickly. Pikria, in the Greek, bitterness. It's used of plants that produce inedible or poisonous fruit. It's used metaphorically of a person whose influence or actions are harmful to others. It's holding on to an attitude. Holding on, get that, holding on. Letting and maintain an attitude of hostility, resentment, and animosity. Bitterness, then, is a disposition towards someone that involves resentment, anger, Animosity and hostility. It's a disposition that holds on to, that leans into a relationship with resentment, anger, animosity, hostility. You ever heard someone say this? Have you ever said this? I just can't stand him or I can't stand her. That's another way of saying I am unashamedly bitter at this person. Where does bitterness come from? How do you get to be bitter? Well, simple. And We know from Paul's discussion about how to be a person who's characterized by love, exactly where bitterness comes from. Bitterness is fostered and maintained by keeping a record of a wrong or wrongs that a person has done to you. That bitterness of keeping a record of wrongs develops into spitefulness and left unchecked, bitterness will become hatefulness. Paul was very aware of this in 1 Corinthians 13, talking about love. He said, Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. Some translations say, Love keeps no record of wrongs. 1 Corinthians 13, 5. Gordon Fee's summary of this verse is really helpful. He says, just as God in Christ does not reckon our sins against us, 2 Corinthians 5.19, so the one who loves does not take notice of the evil done against him or her in the sense that no records are kept waiting for God or man to settle the score. No records are kept. You have a record of a wrong or a list of wrongs that someone has done to you and the recent or distant past that you've held on to that has now become the seeds and the root of bitterness toward that person or those people? A record of wrongs festers like an infected abscess in your heart. Listen to the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, verse 14. Pursue peace with all men. Remember, relationships, recalibrating, reorienting, refostering those relationships. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification or holiness without which no one will see the Lord. There's a lot going on there. Pursue peace, which is holiness. And if you don't have the peace, the holiness of having peace with others, (laughs) the writer says you won't see the Lord. You know what that's code for? You're not a Christian, no matter what you say. Then he goes, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, no one doesn't respond to God's grace, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble and by it many be defiled. Boy, bitterness is so attached to the idea of a grudge. You just keep a grudge against people. In his book, Future Grace, John Piper famously said, if you hold a grudge you doubt the judge. That's so true. Meaning that you disbelieve that God will take care of that sin either in hell or at the cross. Bitterness is a decision. It's not passive, it's active. Bitterness does not happen to you. Bitterness is generated by you and in you. It can arise most often with relationships, but there's another dimension of bitterness that I think is important to understand. You can be bitter at someone for what you think they've done to you, but some can be bitter at God. Bitterness at God typically masks itself, not as I'm bitter at God. It masks itself as I'm bitter about circumstances and situations. Who's sovereign over circumstances and situations? God is. I was reading commentaries on this passage this week, and I came across these words from Martin Lloyd-Jones. And when he said that, I thought, oh, I, I, I wish I had the courage to say that, but I'm not sure I do, so I'm going to let him. Lloyd-Jones preached at the very ending of World War II. In fact, there were times when London was bombed and he, people were running out of the building and he kept preaching. He said this, there are, of course, many people who feel that they have had good cause for being bitter. There were many people in the two world wars who lost a husband or an only son. It is very easy to understand how they have become bitter with regard to the whole of life, but it does not excuse it. It is wrong. They should never have allowed themselves to become bitter. They have been dealt certain hard blows by life, but that is no justification for bitterness or for sourness or for becoming cynical. Even if life is described to them at its very best, their expression lets lets you know that they are not really disposed to allow themselves to enjoy anything. The saddest people I know in this world are these bitter people. They make themselves miserable and for the time being, make everybody else around them miserable. It is a terrible thing to be nursing a grievance, real or imaginary. Put another way, Put it from you, Paul says. Put it away from you. That is the old man. That is the pagan. That is the unregenerate world. It should never appear bitterness in a Christian. End quote. Wow. Bitterness towards circumstances, which is bitterness towards God, or bitterness toward people. Yes, bitterness can come from responding to circumstances aimed at God, but the accent here, I think, in this passage is bitterness at people. And some people can look past that and say that God did this to them through them. So Paul will inform us in the next verse that the cure for bitterness is forgiveness. So just hold on to that a minute. He says, Are you bitter? Stop it. <laughs> Don't be bitter. Don't have grudges. Secondly, no outbursts of anger, no wrath. There are two words that Paul uses back to back, wrath and anger, that look very similar in the English and they're very similar in the Greek. This is wrath has to be put away from you, which is outbursts of anger. It's thumos, it's explosions. The word refers to a boiling over of your anger, emotional anger that erupts in a verbal outburst. It describes the inward feeling that feels better when it erupts. And an outburst. We might call this a temper tantrum, but isn't it easy to say temper tantrums are for kids? Temper tantrums are very real in adults as well. well, aren't they? This is the word for temper tantrum. You don't have a temper tantrum if you're a believer. Put it aside. Outbursts of anger, they always make you feel. Better in the moment, but they distress everyone around you. It's not a way to take care of one another. Very similarly, no simmering resentment. This is anger. This is the inside anger. Let it be put away from you. It's similar, but it's distinct. This is the ongoing, seething anger that will eventually give way to those outbursts. But it's the, it's the inside kind of boiling about anger that hasn't made its way to the surface yet. It's an attitude that morphs into hatred. James talks about this without even using the word. What is the source of the quarrels and conflicts among you? James 4.1. is not the source of your pleasures that wage, Is not the source, the pleasures, the desires that wage war in your members. You lust, you desire and you don't have, so you kill each other, you commit murder. You're envious and you can't obtain, so you fight and quarrel. In other words, he's saying you don't get what you want from the people from whom you want it, so you get angry. These are all related, which leads, number four, to no loud criticism. We have the word clamor in our English translations. Let all clamor be put away from you. Clamor describes a kind of verbal brawling it's noise of complaining to and about others. It means to raise your voice, literally. Raise your voice in disapproval. This is anger and bitterness that manifests itself in heated arguments. I think it's fair to say that perhaps the greatest temptation to do this is with our spouses and our families, our kids and our parents. You know why that is? Because you have no fear of losing them, so you might as well unleash Listen, raising your voice has its place. When your child is about to walk into traffic, raise your voice. That's different than this. This is yelling in an argument. That's what it is. Raising your voice in an argument only intensifies and complicates the problem which leads next to slander or no abusive language. Let slander be put away from you. There's a a progression here. Clamor leads to slander, which means abusive, hurtful language. This is a wicked thing that Paul describes. It means deliberately saying things that are harmful to others, includes enjoyment linked with slandering others, specifically saying and repeating things about others that are calculated to harm them, to hurt them. That includes saying things that are both true and false. You don't have to say everything that's true if it's hurtful to someone. The Greek word here might interest you. It's the word blasphema. You ever heard that word? Blaspheme. I know we talk about blaspheming God. Do you know you can blaspheme others? Which means disrespect them. That's what this is. You blaspheme them which includes every sort of gossip, every sort of hurtful and slanderous speech and language. Remember what we learned in our last study back up in verse 29. Let zero, let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth, but only, specifically, only words that build up and encourage that they'll give grace in the moment. He says, stop it. Don't slander. No abusive Hurtful language. And there's a summary at the end of this. No ill will. All malice. No ill will. Along with all malice. With all malice means all of these come with malice. Malice means, drum roll, meanness. You're mean. You're unkind. Kakia in the Greek. It's a simple word. It means mean. Bad. You're bad or mean to people. And it's manifest in those previous words. Kakia is a workhorse word in the Greek language. It means badness or meanness. Paul uses this word at the end of the list to connect and summarize all the vices and all the sins. Malice or meanness is the root from which all those other sinful vices grow. Malice is the opposite of goodness. As we'll see in a minute, it's the opposite of kindness. It's love. Which is why Paul will say down in chapter 5, verse 2 walk, live in love, not malice, not meanness. Every one of these sins, bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, and badness. Paul says, stop it quit. Don't be that way. Put them off. Now, if you do put them off, you're not done in the radical change that Paul is commanding here. Putting off only makes you naked. It's used in Colossians of take off those clothes. What do you clothe yourself with? What do you put on? And now we come to our second prescription for the believer's treatment of others. extend. It's really simple. Extend every kindness. Extend every, every kindness. Paul commands and expects believers to be people who exude every kindness to others. And the list of virtues in verse 32 should quite literally transform the lives of every person in this room. Extend to every kindness. He starts when the first phrase in verse 32, be considerate. Be kind, here's our word again, to one another. Be kind to one another. By the way, there's two one another's in this passage, in this verse. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another or each other. Same thing. So specifically and most practically, he's talking about the people around you right now in the church, in your care group, in your ministry. This is the put on section. The first word is kindness, krestos. It refers to something easy. It's a synonym of light, and it actually is a, is a cognate of the word Christ. Paul says to the Colossians in the parallel passage, so as those who have been chosen by God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, gentleness, humility, and patience. He combines this all with those first admonitions that Paul gives in verse 2 of chapter 4 of Ephesians. It's interesting how Paul uses this word. He uses it and employs it in 1 Corinthians thirteen four as one of the ways love reveals itself. Love is kind. Love is kind. Now, it's interesting to have this big word, malice, and it really just means being mean. I looked in two different dictionaries, my best Greek dictionaries, and the word here translated kindness means, are you ready for this? Nice. Be nice. Christians are nice people as opposed to being malice, mean. Oh, this is so rich. Because in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, Paul uses the same word about God. Listen to this. Romans 2, 4, Do not think lightly of the riches of God's kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness, same word, of God leads you to repentance. Kindness. Solicits and generates, encourages, change in others. We said it before, you can't bad attitude someone into a good attitude. It just doesn't work. I mean, parents, how does it work to sit your little six-year-old on the couch, furl your eyebrows, point your finger on their little sternum, and say, you will be nice to your brother! Oh, just like you're being nice to me, Dad. That's great. I love that. You can't bad attitude someone into a good attitude. This is, you good attitude someone into a good attitude. That's, God, His kindness leads us to change. It leads us to repent. Kindness is also one of the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. If you're filled with the Spirit, I wish there was a more complicated word, but you're nice. If you're controlled by the Spirit, you're a nice man. You're a nice woman. You're not unkind. God was kind to us. Look back. Just flip for a second back to Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2.4, but God... In, in opposition to us being dead in our trespasses and sins, but God being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us even when we were dead in our transgressions made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. He raised us up with Him, seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that, verse 7, in the ages to come, God might show the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness kindness. Toward us in Christ Jesus. Do you recognize how kind God has been to you? If you you can't find a reason, put your finger on your wrist and feel your pulse. You're alive. It's not too mundane to say, be nice, put on niceness, be pleasant. I hate to even use this example, but have you have you ever known someone who just to be around them is just unpleasant? And they say they belong to the Lord; they're just not happy about life. Being kind means you have a generated happiness, as we'll see in a minute, because of the gospel. Secondly, be Compassionate. Be considerate, be compassionate. This is how we extend every kindness. Be compassionate. We translate this word tenderheartedness. i got I to confess, this is becoming a, a favorite Greek word. It's really, really interesting. Tender-hearted. It's a compound of the words for good, and are you ready for this? Bowels or intestines. Have good bowels. Have good intestines. He's not talking about kaopectate. The word is splanchnos. Have good splanchnos, which is your guts. Have good guts. Have tender guts. What in the world does that mean? It means you feel tender. The Greek mind understood feelings as resting in your midsection, in, in your, your guts, your, your bowels. And you understand that. You get butterflies in your stomach. When, you, when you're anxious, you feel pains in your side. When, you, when you're lonely or happy, that can all be generated from your, from your bowels, the, the deep part of who you are. Splankness. We use these kind of metaphors all the time. This breaks my heart. Come on. Is your cardiac muscle going, it doesn't break your heart? Or, that makes my blood boil. Are you serious? Has your blood really reached 200, what is it? A lot of degrees? Just testing you. Or that just melts me. Are you melting? No. This word goes to the deepest part of our affections. Be soft Gutted about people. You know what he's saying? Be feeling about others. This is another way of saying be empathetic. Be ready to feel life as another feels life. Be ready to see life as another sees life. Be ready to understand life as another one does. It means seeing life through the eyes of someone Else, understanding them better from their perspective, feeling life as they feel it, tender-hearted, it's emphatic. So tender-heartedness means learning to selflessly listen and care about others. You care about them, you listen to them. But that leads to the climax. Be merciful. Be considerate, be compassionate, be merciful. All as extensions of every kindness or niceness. Be merciful, forgiveness. Look at that last phrase, forgiving each other, forgiving one another, forgiving other believers especially, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. The climax of this section is to come in, and I think it's bookended. The worst thing you can do is be bitter. That's the beginning of this section. The way to solve all of it is to forgive. That's the end. You must have grace and kindness and mercy and tenderheartedness and compassion as preparations to Forgive. Only those who work hard at maintaining awareness of God's forgiveness to us can be active forgivers of others. Now, we've studied forgiveness many times, but let me remind you that the idea of forgiveness is really the word is a finance word, it really means to cancel a debt. To not hold something that's owed to you against the person who owes it to you. That's what forgiveness means. We still use that term today in finances. Debts are forgiven. Forgiven debts. This is all rooted in gospel understanding. So Paul, look at what he's doing. He's concluding by giving us the ultimate motivation for forgiveness. all all Christian virtue, which is imitating God in Christ. Look at the phrase, forgiving each other, which would not make sense in and of itself unless he said, just as, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. Wow, does the gospel, your own forgiveness as a Christian, provide you with a perspective that, has a worldview, it sees the world, as saturated with a willingness and a readiness to forgive others. It should. The opposite of, of doing this is to maintain grudges and be bitter. I, I just want you to notice really quickly just some of the comparatives that are in this immediate context. Just as Christ. God in Christ has is forg- is forgiven you, verse 32. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. Be imitators of God. And then in verse 2, just as Christ loved us. It all goes back to who is God? What, is, what, what has He done for us? What is Christ like? What do we learn from the character of the Trinity Himself? Now, I have to say this because there's a, a raging debate in some counseling circles. There is a, there's a, exegetical, uh, lexical, and a a practical difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. Those are two different concepts. They're related, but they're different. Christians are called to forgive others and forgive offenses, even if the person never asks for forgiveness, or even if the person is never sorry or apologizes, you can still forgive them, meaning not hold them to that offense, Reconciliation goes further than that and says because of forgiveness, we are now going to be reconciled in our relationship and the offense between us is going to be discussed. Forg- forgiveness is going to be sought and granted and we're reconciled to each other. You hear the difference? Forgiveness is at the heart of reconciliation, but it's different. How important is forgiveness even if the person ever asks you for it? Oh, this is, this is so, so heavy. Matthew 6, 14. If you forgive others, Jesus said, for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Well, if, that, what do you mean if? He explains, but if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Said another way, saved people are forgiving people. And those who refuse to forgive are not believers. God will not forgive an unforgiver. Forgiveness is the secret sauce of Christian happiness and contentment. What I mean by that, forgiveness is the secret sauce of Christian happiness and forgiveness. If you can forgive others, then you're not under the bondage of that relational breach. You can live above it. Forgiveness demands a difficult and humbling recognition. What is that? It's in the verse. Forgiving each other just as, you got to remember this, God in Christ also has done what? He's forgiven you. The sins that you are called to forgive are not as bad to you as your sins are to God. Not near. We were talking about this at our elders meeting last Friday. Daniel Good reminded me to think of it like this we should realize that we are more like the worst sinners we're called to forgive than we are to God. We're closer to them, not God. We usually think, yeah, you know, it's me and God, and we got people to forgive. No, no, we're all on the other side of God and need forgiveness. Does the gospel, does the gospel motivate and drive and give you perspective on forgiveness? J.C. Ryle says, Let us determine by God's grace to forgive, even as we hope to be forgiven. This is the nearest approach we can make to the mind of Christ. What a statement. This is the character which is most suitable to a poor sinful child of Adam. God's free forgiveness of sins is our highest privilege in this world. God's free forgiveness will be our only title to eternal life in the world to come then let us be forgiving during the few years that we are here upon the earth and then he goes on to say this an unforgiving and quarrelsome spirit is the surest mark of an unregenerate heart End quote i mean it's, it's kind of an application of the golden rule isn't it do unto others as you would have them do unto you, Matthew 7, 12. In everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you. We all love being forgiven, but granting forgiveness is a whole nother thing. Do you have any grudges? Are you bitter about something or someone or something that happens, something that is happening? Are you willing to forgive them? Just as God, in the execution of His Son and raising Him from the dead, has forgiven you. That's the question. Our Lord provided the best example for our understanding of forgiveness and need to forgive. And it really really doesn't need a lot of explanation. I'm going to read you these familiar words from Matthew 18, verse 21 and following. Peter came and said to Jesus, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? And then he's kind of proud of himself, up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but uh, 70 times seven, seven zero times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves, his workers. When he came and began to, began to settle with them, the one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. That is an insurmountable amount of money that no one could make in a in thousand lifetimes. He began to settle. The, he found one who owed him 10,000 talents. But since he did not have the means to repay, he said to his lord, along with his, his lord commanded him to be sold, along with his wife and children, and all he had, and repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground, prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything, which is a ridiculous statement. He could have never repaid him everything. And the lord of that slave, felt compassion, and released him and forgave that debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. Day's work. And he seized him, began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground, began to plead with him, saying, Does this sound familiar? Have patience with me, and I will repay you, which he could have done. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves, there was an audience, saw what happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their lord, the king, all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? There's the the lesson. And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. That's eternity. Then Jesus says, My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. Pretty easy application, isn't it? Are, are we happy to receive forgiveness from God? And resistant to extend Forgiveness to others who have offended us far less, just like this story, than we ever owed or offended God? Let me ask you are you bitter at anyone about anything, even including God? Are you bitter? Are you holding a grudge? Does the gospel have influence? on how you view the sins of others? Oh, there's such a a lesson here. Forgiving each other just as God also in Christ forgave you. Do you understand that we are envoys of mercy, not giving people what we deserve? They deserve grace, forgiveness, because that's the way God treats us. Will you forgive any offense? Will you forgive every offense? like God has forgiven you. If you can, that's the secret sauce to happiness. You can't dislodge someone who is lodged and anchored in their forgiveness from Christ. I trust you've been forgiven if you haven't. Wow, what a, what a passage to see. The mirror of eternity, as we read in the beginning, and commit your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is... Wonderful. His burden is light. He's easy. He's wonderful to walk to and to walk with. He forgives sin. He makes you holy and pure and righteous before God. Look what what kind of fool would say no to that?